passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this morning we're going to be addressing a vital topic for our spiritual health uh, and for our well-being. It is a battle that is uh, waging war against us inside of each and every one of us. It is the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And it is this war that wages on inside of us that keeps us from apologizing to others, even when we know we're wrong. It is this war that keeps us driving around, even though we know that we are lost and we should stop and ask for directions. It is this war that keeps us from enjoying the success of those around us when they succeed. It is this that keeps us from being happy when others are successful, when uh, admitting when we are wrong, even though we obviously know we are wrong. It keeps us from being honest When we need to be honest, there's this battle that causes us to belittle others when they succeed. It causes us to feel good when others fail. It causes us to lie about our pasts. And it causes us to buy things to keep up with people that we don't really even care about. There's a battle that is a disease in our culture. It is infecting sports, music, Cinema, all of life. In short, this is the battle of pride. It was the issue of pride. Andy Stanley, a pastor in uh, the Atlanta, Georgia area, tells us that pride is that thing that keeps us from blank and causes us to blank. It is a cancer that has eaten away on the inside of each and every one of us here this morning. And the thing about pride is that it is unbelievably deceitful. Unbelievably deceitful. It causes us to do things that we normally wouldn't do, and it causes us to not do things that we normally would do. It affects all of us. It's easy for us to spot pride in others, and yet we have extreme trouble identifying it in ourselves. And this morning, if we're honest, it's probably what we would call an elbow sermon. We have a tendency as we talk about pride to think of the person who's sitting right next to us. And so we're calling this an elbow sermon because the tendency is to do this, is to elbow the person right next to you, but you have to keep those close to you. Because today is not primarily about the pride of the person sitting right next to you. It's not primarily about the pride of the person that you wish was here this morning and you want me to just take a time out for about 10 minutes so they can get here. This morning is primarily about the pride in your own heart. It is primarily about the battle inside your heart, your desire to establish and to fortify the kingdom of self in your own heart. C.S. Lewis, he, he describes pride so well when he says, the more prideful that we are, the more we tend to be offended by the pride of others. The more prideful that we are, the more that we tend to be offended by the pride of others. As we try to expand our own little kingdoms, we see other people expanding their own little kingdoms and we get upset about that. And so 
we are offended by their pride. You see, all of us struggle with pride. One pastor points out that pride is like fighting a shapeshifter. It, t- it comes in all sorts of forms and sizes. Most of us, when we think of pride, we think of arrogance. We think of those who exalt themselves, of those who promote themselves, of those who are trying to justify themselves. And certainly that is pride. But at the same time, pride is also the polar opposite. It is prideful of us to degrade ourselves. Pride can be seen as self-demotion and self-condemnation. Parents struggle with pride. Unmarried people struggle with pride. The rich struggle with pride. The poor struggle with pride. Probably one of the biggest groups that struggles with pride. Pastors. Pastors struggle with pride because as pastors are are seeking to spread the kingdom of God at the same time, whether they want to or not, are spreading the kingdom of self. I am intimately aware of this struggle in my own heart. This challenge to not find justification in what I do, but instead to find justification in God himself. I'm intimately aware, know from experience, the struggle of both sides of pride. The the tendency to exalt self and then at the same time, or just a few seconds later, to condemn myself for those actions. Pride knows no bounds. It is a cancer that has existed from very, very nearly the beginning of creation. Pride is what caused Adam and Eve to eat of the tree in the Garden of Eden because they were not satisfied with God's leadership. And they instead wanted to have his throne for themselves. After the, after the flood, which really starts this new chapter in God's creation, we see pride quickly sneak in to God's creation once more. And that's where we pick up this morning in Genesis. If you have a Bible, I invite you to, to open up to Genesis chapter 11. For those of you who are new with us, we are on our way through the book of Genesis. And we have made it all the way to Genesis chapter 11. This is a familiar passage with with many of us this morning. It is the story of the Tower of Babel, a very popular story that reminds us of sin, reminds us that sin is very present in God's world, that the descendants of Adam and Eve are really following in their footsteps. So please follow along as I read aloud. I'm just going to read this entire section Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, as we begin this morning. Hear these words from the book we love. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down, and therefore, and there confused their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
As I mentioned, this is a very popular passage. Many of us are, are familiar with this story, but if we were to sum up what this passage is teaching us, I think we could do it in, in just two sentences. Monuments to self never last. Monuments to God never fade. Monuments to self will never last. The, the process of building the kingdom of self is futile. It will never last. But in contrast, monuments to God, building the kingdom of God, focused on the kingdom of God, will last forever. If you were here with us last week, you may notice that we skipped an entire chapter of Genesis, and that's Genesis chapter 10. You might be saying, what's going on there? What happens in Genesis 10? And the reason why we skipped over this chapter is because Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 actually take place at the exact same time. It's the exact same thing going on. So let's go ahead and flip back briefly to chapter 10. Just talk about it real quick as we continue forward. This is a passage that's commonly called the Table of Nations. And it's called the Table of Nations because it contains in it a lot of names, all describing the descendants of Noah. There are 70 names listed here, and that's a significant number. The number 70 uh, is a sign of completion. It's a sign of fullness in the Old Testament. It's not important for us to know all of these names. It's not important for us to, to know where all of these names come from, where they all went. What is important is this number. What the author of Genesis is telling us and reminding us with, these, with this number is that all of the earth, all of humanity has its origin in Noah. Every single person who has ever lived or will ever live can ultimately trace their heritage back to Noah. That's not saying that these, uh, these names aren't real. It's just saying that the significance is on the origin, all tracing back to Noah. Genesis 10, 5, uh, let's go ahead and read that. It's a, it's a somewhat confusing verse, but, but it's helpful for us to look at. It says this, from, they, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. I mentioned that Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 take place at the same time. And this verse is one of the reasons that we, that we believe that. Because here in verse 5 of chapter 10, it tells us that everyone spreads throughout the earth with their own language. But then we get to Genesis 11, and Genesis 11 tells us that there's only one language on the face of the planet. The logical explanation is that this is happening at the exact same time. Genesis chapter 11 explains the table of nations. And I think that Moses, the author of Genesis, intentionally places things in this order for two reasons. First, he wants to emphasize the connection between Noah and Noah's descendants. So that's the first thing that he's trying to emphasize here. Second thing, by putting this out of chronological order, he is also at the same time emphasizing the importance of what happens next. He gives us a little hint of what's about to happen here in Genesis chapter 10, picking up in verse 8. He says this, Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on the earth to be called a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalna, in the, line, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Notice 
what Nineveh, or excuse me, what Nimrod is known for here. The first thing that it says about him after saying uh, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord is that he is the founder of Babel. Now, this name Nimrod is significant because Nimrod literally means rebellion. And right here, already in Genesis chapter 10, we're, we're getting a little glimpse of what's coming next. We're getting a little bit of foreshadowing about the significance of what is happening at Babel. The tower, the building of this tower and the building of this city is an act of rebellion against God. In the same way as we're talking about pride, pride is a rebellion against God. It is a declaration of independence from God and from his plans. It is telling God that we want to go our own way. We want to do things our own way because his way isn't good enough for us. Pride is a rebellion against God and is a rebellion against his plans. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 11 as we explore this passage and what it says uh, to us about pride. There's a couple things that, are, that we're going to notice. And, and really, this passage can be split up into answering three questions. First question it, it answers for us is, what is pride? It just defines what pride is. Second question that it answers for us is, how does God view pride? And the third question that it answers for us is, how does God respond to pride. So let's go ahead and look at those three questions. First, the, the first question, what is pride? And we're, to do that, we're going to look at verses three and four once more. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What does this passage revealed to us about pride? Well, first, it reveals that pride is human-focused. Pride is human-focused. Notice the words here. Come, let us build a city and a tower. The attempt here is to get God completely out of the picture. In the ancient times, most people didn't live in cities. The only time you would gather together into a city was for safety and for shelter and security. It's not saying that living in a city is a bad thing. After all, the end of the Bible ends in the New Jerusalem, a city. But as we see, the focus of these people is to build something that they can get away from God. That they can get him out of the picture. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 8 and we saw that Noah and his family began the, by, by making this commitment with God. They dedicated themselves to God and said, we are going to follow you. We're going to do everything that we can to honor you with every fiber of our beings. That commitment is gone here. And in its place, we see a desire to build something that lasts. A desire to make a name for themselves, to, to be remembered by their actions. How often do we see this in history? Countless kings from the beginning of time have attempted to build monuments testimonies to their greatness, the greatness of their power and the greatness of their rule. They forsake their creator, building edifices to their own might, just like Babel. I can think of no greater example than Alexander the Great. As we're all aware, these monuments to self do not last. Alexander the Great was a shooting star. He rose to power in a miraculously young age. He had one of the largest empires in, in world history. And by the time he was just a little bit over 30, he lost it all because he died. 
just a few years after he died. This empire that he had built disintegrated. It was just a shell of what it once was. Same thing happened to the Roman Empire, another wonderfully powerful, large empire in human history. It eventually was taken over by bands of marauding barbarians in the early 400s. One pastor, it just puts it so eloquently, he says this, The death of a king is all sufficient to teach this one lesson if men would but learn it. When kings die and in funeral pomp are carried to the grave, we are taught the lesson by God, I am God, and beside me there is none else. I am God, and beside me there is none else. Pride sets us in opposition to God. Pride attempts to squeeze God out of the picture, to get him out of the picture. And if you are a God, if you are making yourself a God, claiming that you are God, there's no room for God in your life. Pride is human-focused, not God-focused. Another thing that this passage tells us about pride is that pride attempts to dethrone God. See, pride doesn't just attempt to get God out of the picture. It actually attempts to dethrone him. There's a focus on getting rid of God. Notice again here in Babel, they are building a city and a tower. But notice how it's described. It's described with its top touching the heavens. And to understand that language, we have to go back to our junior high history classes. Uh, do we have a picture to, to throw up here? Okay, who knows what this is? It is called a ziggurat. How many of you have heard that name before going back to junior high? Okay, a couple people. Um, uh, this is a ziggurat. They were, they were very popular in the ancient Near East, especially where Babel was located in modern-day Iraq. And they were built with no purpose other than exalting a city's greatness and also worshiping various gods. Okay, so that's what is being built here. I think what we have a tendency to think of when we think of the Tower of Babel is a modern-day skyscraper. Or in my children's book, it was like the straight version of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's a very straight, you know, very tall building. That's not the focus here. That's not what is being built. It's, it's a ziggurat like this. And the name of this ziggurat, the name of this city, tells us a lot about its purpose. The name Babel really has, has two meanings. One is confusion, which is very appropriate for this, uh, for this passage. But it also means gate of the God. Gate of the God. That reveals to us a lot about what's happening here. It reveals to us that this is really a human-made attempt to bridge the gap between humanity and God, to, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And most of the time, these ziggurats were built for worship. They were intended, that picture that we had up there, you don't have to show it again, had a, a staircase, and the intention was for the God to literally be able to walk down the stairs. But you can tell that wasn't the purpose here in Babel. It wasn't for the God to come down. It's for humanity to ascend. See, people weren't satisfied with the way things were. God was exalted, and they were lowly here on earth, and they were determined to change that. And so they decided to build a tower. They decided to build a tower, ascend to heaven, and kick God out of heaven. And when we hear that today, it just sounds absolutely ridiculous. Did they really believe that they would be able to make it to heaven? 
Did they really believe that they'd be able to throw God out of heaven and take his place? It sounds ridiculous, but how often do we do the same? How often do we do the same in our own lives when the Spirit of God convicts us of sin? And not only do we just refuse, just ignore God, but we do more than that. We run deeper into the dark, black embrace of sin. We do this in our own lives when we are given a promotion or we are honored at work. And instead of thanking God, we take the credit for ourselves. We honor ourselves instead of God. There's one NBA player. He said this a couple years ago after he was receiving an award. He comes up and he says, first of all, I would like to thank myself for all my hard work and dedication. That is the power. That is the tower of Babel. That is pride. That is dethroning God from his position. And here in Babel and here in our own lives, in our own kingdom of self, God is nowhere to be found because we in our pride have dethroned him. We've taken him and we've thrown him off of the throne of our lives. Next thing that this passage teaches us, pride exalts self. Pride exalts self. Notice the purpose of this building, to make a name for ourselves. To make a name for themselves. That's what pride does. Pride is simply just an attempt to make a name for itself. It's a desire to uh, exalt one's self. And this is what keeps us from apologizing when we know we are wrong. It's because we want to preserve the name that we have built up. This is what makes us happy when we see others fail. It's because we are glad our name is safe. While another's name is trampled on and soiled. It is an attempt to make our name great. It is an attempt to exalt ourselves. And we do this in many different ways. We oftentimes think of making our name great when we focus on exalting ourselves, on arrogance, on lifting ourselves up. And that's true. But again, making your name great can also happen when you tear yourself down. Because the expectation there is for someone else to lift you up. Someone else to make your name great. Years ago, when I was uh, learning how to play the piano, I was really bad. Um, And I would tell people that I was really bad. But I would tell people that I was really bad with the hope and the expectation that they would respond, Oh, no, you're not. You're really good. That is pride. That is the desire to not make a name for yourself, but to have someone else make a name for you. Pride exalts self. And one more final thing from this uh, section, these couple verses. Pride is an act of rebellion. Pride is an act of rebellion. We already mentioned this, but it bears repeating. Pride is rebellion against God. It's rebellion against the way that he has set things up, his commands, his orders. We see in Genesis chapter 9 that God commands Noah and his family to fill the earth. But here in Genesis chapter 11, we see the people of humanity gathering together so that they will not be dispersed. Again, it's not wrong to live in a city. The focus here is on their desire to not be dispersed, to not fill the earth. It is a rebellion against God's plan, God's desires, his commands. It is a rebellion against God himself. Every time we ignore God, we are laying a brick on the foundation of our own little tower of Babel. Every time we exalt ourselves at the expense of others, we are expanding the kingdom of self, not the kingdom of God. Pride is an act 
of rebellion. So this passage tells us a little bit about what pride is, but it also describes how God views pride in the next two verses, picking up in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower what the, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What does this tell us about how God views pride? Well, first, notice the irony here in verse 5. God sees our pride as laughable. God sees our pride as laughable. Notice what's going on here in this, uh, in this passage. Humanity is attempting to build a tower to the heavens. They're, uh, they're attempting to reach to heaven, to get to God, and be able to throw him out of heaven. And what does it say when God notices things? He has to come down to see what they are doing. The tower is so small so insignificant that he has to leave his throne and come to heaven or come from heaven to earth to see what is going on here. I think one of the keys to overcoming our pride is really to just look at it from God's perspective, to understand what is going on from God's perspective. Perspective. When we see that our monuments to self are so small, they're so puny, they're so insignificant, that God looks at them and laughs, it really changes the way that we look at ourselves. When we think that we are great and amazing, we can remember that this is the one who has all creation singing his praises. When we think that we are the best, we can remember the great, wonderful power of God. Looking at our pride, our accomplishments from God's perspective helps us a great deal in overcoming our pride. You see, your pride may be laughable to God, but it isn't a laughing matter. The book of Ezekiel tells us that one of the reasons why the kingdom of Judah was destroyed was because of their pride. Ezekiel 7 says this, Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitants of the land. The time has come. The day is near. A day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways. Which, while your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Notice how it ends there. All of the condemnation that is proclaimed against Israel in these verses ends with pride has This is the result of your pride, of your self-exaltation. You see, God looks at our pride and he sees it as laughable. He sees it as small and insignificant, but at the same time, he will respond with wrath. Notice what else this passage tells us about how God views pride. It also tells us that God sees our pride as indicative of the human heart. It is indicative of the human heart. It gives us a good picture of everything else that we believe. Now, verse 6 is an interesting verse because it tells us that, that God is kind of worried. 
It almost portrays God as nervous that humanity is actually going to succeed in their plan of reaching him and overthrowing him. Let's take a look again at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to, or for them. We can read that verse and say, well, God's nervous about what's going to happen to him. But I think that that is an unfaithful reading of this passage. God's not actually concerned with the tower. God isn't actually concerned with what they are doing, this monument to themselves. So he doesn't take care of this monument. He knows time is going to take care of that monument. Instead, God decides to uh, address the blackness of of the human heart. He knows that pride is representative of their hearts. That's really seen in the last thing that this passage reveals to us, that God sees pride as opposition to him. God sees pride as opposition to him. There's the attempt to exalt oneself in the place of God. That's why God sees pride as such a heinous crime. It's because we try to ascend to his throne. See, we cannot simultaneously be concerned with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. We will either be focused on God and focused on others, or we'll be focused on ourselves and therefore directly opposed to God. God sees pride as opposition to him. And this is why pride is such a serious crime in God's economy. It is the theft of his glory for ourselves when it belongs solely to to him. And that's why God responds in such a drastic way here in Babel. Take a look at verses 7 through 9. It says this, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And there and they left off the building or building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. How does God respond to their pride? How does God respond to our rebellious pride? Well, first, he he doesn't destroy the monument. He knows that time is going to take care of that. The monument is small and insignificant in his perspective. Instead, he decimates their ability to do something like this again. He decimates their ability to exalt themselves as one body, as one people group by the creation of multiple languages. See, God is opposed to the pride of humanity. It's seen throughout scripture. Just a couple examples. Proverbs 15, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Isaiah 2, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Jeremiah 50, the proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up, and I will kindle fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. Ezekiel 28, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your, your heart, 
though you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their sword against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas, while you still say, I am a god in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no god in the hands of those who slay you. Luke 1, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. James 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to a rebellious pride. God is directly opposed to this poison that is in our hearts. And if we don't deal with it, we can be assured confidently from the testimony of Scripture that God will. That God will take care of our pride. That God will address our pride. And so you may be saying, well, how, how do I handle my pride? We already mentioned, first look at things from God's perspective. Helps us to look at things in a healthy way. But I think another thing is to just worship. To worship God. If you notice that we've been defining pride, we've really just been focusing on pride as a preoccupation with self. It's a preoccupation with self. Either in a, in a positive light, you know, you're so preoccupied with yourself that you're going to just exalt yourself, or you're so preoccupied with yourself that you're just going to tear yourself down. Pride is a focus on yourself, not on God, and not on others. But worship changes that. Worship helps us forget ourselves, helps us to get over ourselves, and to focus instead on God, to put life in the right perspective, helps us to see our lives through the right lens, to look at our, our accomplishments from the perspective of heaven, to see our pride in the exact same way that God sees the Tower of Babel. You see, friends, the testimony of the Tower of Babel of Genesis chapter 11 is clear. Monuments to self never last. Monuments to God never fade. So ask yourself this morning. Are you focused on the kingdom of God? Or on the kingdom of self? Five areas to just look at as we attempt to identify this. First, the area of identity. Is your identity found in God? Is your identity found in the rock-solid confidence in what God has done for you? Or is your identity instead rooted in what others say about you? Is your identity instead rooted in what you say about you? If it's the latter, if it's not rooted in God and what he has done for you, then you struggle with pride. Second area, awe. Are you in awe of God or are you in awe of yourself? Do you look back at your life your accomplishments, the improvements that you have made in your life, if your initial response, your initial desire is to pat yourself on the back instead of falling to your knees 
and thanking God for his faithfulness. It's pride. Let us be instead in awe of God. Because if we're in awe of ourselves, we've settled for second best. Let us be in awe of God and give up the kingdom of self. Third, relationships. What's more important to you? Being right or maintaining a relationship? If what matters most to you is winning an argument at all costs, proving yourself right, even if it harms the relationship that you are in, it is a symptom of pride. It is a desire to be right, to win the argument, to focus on making a name for yourself, not on God and his kingdom. Fourth, reputation. How important is your reputation to you? How important is your reputation to you? Does it prevent you from opening up about your struggles? Does it prevent you from opening up with others about your shortcomings and your failures? Do you expect more of yourself? Do you put on a facade of holiness to come here on Sunday mornings to look the part? How important is your reputation to you? Again, it's an issue of pride. And fifth and finally, uh, essentiality. How essential do you view yourself in any area? Do you see yourself as essential, as vital to the success of this church, of your life or of different areas? Could things not go on without you? A personal example of this, um, I, I really struggle with this. When, when we launched the Spencer campus a year and a half ago, I made a commitment that I was going to be here on Sunday mornings for setup. If everyone else was here at seven, I was going to be here at five. If everyone else was done tearing down at two, I was going to be here till three. If the bathrooms needed to be cleaned, I didn't want anyone else to have to do that. I was going to be the one who did that. And I thought that when we started, that, that was um, a way to, to love others, to, to serve others. I didn't want other people to, to be serving more than me on a Sunday morning. I think it was a, a good um, desire as it started. But pride is deceitful. Over the last couple of weeks, God has been revealing to me that I've seen myself as essential to the ministry of Crosswinds. That I've prevented other people from the joy of serving that I have such a hard time peeling my fingers back. And that was probably the biggest indication to me of this symptom of pride. That I view myself oftentimes as essential. That things cannot go on without me. Focus on the kingdom of self and not on the kingdom of God. So take the time. Ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself if you are building up a monument to self instead of focused, being focused on the kingdom of God. If you've spent your whole life trying to make a name for yourself so that others will respect you, so that you will respect yourself, so that God will respect you. If you find yourself 
in that place. Here's the good news of Genesis. Just skipping forward to Genesis 12. We're going to look at this next week. But these first two verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We have a tendency to be like the people of Babel, to be so focused on making our names great, to be so focused on building our own kingdom, and God scatters the people of Babel across the globe. But in Genesis chapter 11, God takes Abram, a man who had no desire to follow God, and he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to choose you and make your name great. If you find yourself on a quest to make your name great, you are ultimately chasing after the wind. It won't happen. And honestly, in the process, you will find yourself directly opposed to God. But if you entrust yourself to God, as Abram eventually does, if you are fully and utterly committed to God and his kingdom, then you will find yourself free. God may make your name great, God may not, but ultimately it will not matter because you are committed to the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of self, just as Abram once was. I've said it here in the past, we are not made to be somebody. We are made to know somebody. And that's what we see in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. The monuments that we're building to ourselves will never last. But a focus on the kingdom of God will last forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for, first of all, for grace. Uh, Even as we find ourselves rebelling against you, going our own way, choosing to, to disobey you, to honor ourselves over you, that you remain gracious that you are compassionate. God, we pray right now that you would forgive us for the towers of Babel in our own hearts. Forgive us for the ways that we try to dethrone you, that we try to uh, get you out of the picture, that we rebel against you. Help us, God, as we seek to make a name for ourselves to instead trust in you, love you deeply, and run to you. God, help us to look at things through the lens of heaven, to worship you and to focus on your kingdom, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.